Puck behind the net. Back out to Oleksiak. Now Sekera with it for Dallas. The return for Oleksiak. Jamie Oleksiak leaving it for Sekera. Stevie Ronta setting up in front. He shoots. He scores! A hat trick and a game seven overtime winner for Yoel Stevie Ronta of the Dallas Stars who move on to the Western Conference Final. Hey now, hey now, I told you, I told you I would be back this week, quickly, uh, I want to thank Ben Ryder, and also, who else was on the show with Ben Ryder, you know, this is a problem with my podcast, I can't remember what I did five minutes ago, Brandon Sneed as well, Ben and Brandon, season 10, episode 22, you can get it, soundcloud.com slash sports casters. Uh, but I got a new episode for you today, Season 10, Episode 23, November 13th, 2020, as we inch closer and closer to th- 2021, which will be the 10-year anniversary of the Sportscasters, which is wild. 10 years of the Sportscasters. Today on the show, the great Kenny Albert will join us in a minute, and I recorded this episode or this interview yesterday with Kenny, and it's awesome. I'm super psyched about it. We spent a lot of time. Uh, it was the perfect time. Kenny was relaxed. He had, I had his full attention. And we talk about him being on the inner bubble. We talk about if he thinks he's going to get Doc Emmerich's job. We talk about calling high school football. We talk about NFL protocols, getting taken off of the two broadcasts. We cover it all, and it's awesome, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Also on the show, Glenn Kenny will join us. He's the author of a book called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, and this is awesome too. The book is great. Uh, the movie is my number one probably, and uh, the interview was fun as well. So it's a great show. I'm fired up uh, for the podcast, and I'm also fired up for one last thing today. And there's a reason. It's a very special edition of One Last Thing. For the first time in the history of One Last Thing, there is a guest. And the guest is here because him and I have a very, very special announcement. Okay, so if you're listening, hang in there. One Last Thing, very special announcement with my guest, the first guest ever in one last thing so this is the show we are going to do first things first in a second then kenny albert then the book club update then glenn kenny then one last thing special guest major announcement got all that all right uh first things first the ivy league Uh, canceled winter sports today, uh, which means there will not be hockey in the Ivy League today. Now, most of, if not all, of the other 
conferences will, of course, be playing. And actually, there is college hockey games today. Friday the 13th, Wisconsin versus Notre Dame. Big Ten hockey uh, is ready to go. Saturday, Arizona State and Michigan. The debut of Long Island University playing Army. Uh, Wisconsin and Notre Dame. College hockey is being played this year with or without the Ivy League. Okay, next week there's Atlantic hockey games. Hockey East games. All right, and the Ivy League is not the only one who has announced that they won't be playing. RIT also uh, was told that their student-athletes couldn't play hockey this year because of a decision made by something called the Liberty League, which is the D3 league that most of the other uh, teams are in. So I don't know what RIT is doing, and I don't know what the Ivy League is doing. It's ridiculous. It's unbelievably ridiculous. There is no way you can convince me that 20 college kids, 25 college kids at Yale, are safer not playing hockey, not being with the team, than they are playing hockey, being with the team, following protocols, getting tested, doing everything that athletic teams do in 2020, the age of COVID. You just can't convince me of it. It is much safer to keep those kids together, focused, working on hockey, on hours, not drinking as much, not partying as much, focusing on their games, staying together, creating a team bubble, being tested, having the uh, medical, the trainers, everything that goes with a major D1 program. You could never convince me that it's less safe to do that than it is to just be a college student. Right When college started in August, there was huge COVID spikes all across the country because the college kids got together and they do what college kids do. They party, they drink, they have casual sex, they make out. But you know who wasn't doing that? Football players. They were at practice, right? And there's been football players. All, like There's a ton of games canceled this week in college football. I'm not saying that college sports means there's no COVID. Like, kids are getting it. Uh, players have gotten it. Now, the chief uh, medical officer of the NFL uh, made a comment this week. And I'm going to read it to you. And it was in an article on OutKick is where I seen it. But whatever. He didn't make the comment to OutKick. OutKick really isn't a part of it. He actually made this uh, to Peter King. Oh, we got a commercial playing on my phone. Thanks for that, OutKick. All right, this uh, Peter King uh, left NBC. Albert Breer now does the uh, Monday morning QB column. And he posed a question uh, to the chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills. This is what he said. We have seen zero evidence of transmission player to player on the field, either during games or practices, which I think is an important and powerful statement. And it also confirms what other sports leagues have found around the world. We regularly communicate with World Rugby, Australian Rules Football, European Soccer Leagues. To date, not one has documented a case of player-to-player -player transmission in a field sporting event. Obviously, I don't think we're at the point where it cannot occur, but none of us have seen it yet, and that's really encouraging. Instead, they've discovered three high-risk areas, meeting, eating, and greeting. 
This is uh, Dr. Sills again. He says, as far as when you do have a positive individual in a team environment, there are three things that create high-risk contact. And that's meeting, eating, and greeting. Meeting being the team meetings that happen. Eating together, that's obvious because people are unmasked. And if you're sitting with someone eating, that can create high risk. And when I say greeting, I mean that social activity outside the building, people hanging out together and doing things. All right, so Ivy League, you canceled hockey. Well, what are the kids going to do now? Probably a lot more meeting, eating, and greeting. Okay, I wasn't a college athlete. That's what I did in college. I did a lot of meeting, eating, and greeting. That's what I did. I went to classes, meetings. I ate all day, every day. And I did a lot of greeting. A lot of greeting. Mostly with females. Look, you're just never going to convince me that you made these kids safer by taking hockey away from them. You just won't. And I know there's people out there saying, oh, Steve, the risk. Oh, my God. We don't know the risk. Come on. Come on. What risk is the COVID to 22-year-old D1 college hockey athletes? Come on. Come on. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, soft, disastrous behavior by the Ivy League. And here's who's going to suffer. The players on the teams this year are going to suffer. And also the programs because people are going to transfer the hell out. And it's going to take years for Yale and Harvard and Princeton and Cornell. Cornell, by the way, who was a national championship, a legit national championship contender taken away from them this year. After, by the way, they were a legit national championship contender last year and it was taken away from them last year because they canceled the NCAA tournament. It's going to take forever for these teams to get to where they were before this. Because kids are going to transfer out. And also, kids aren't going to trust the Ivy League anymore. I wouldn't. If you listen to this show for any period of time, you know that my brother was a D1 athlete in an Ivy League program, yo. And it's the best four years of his life and the best four years my family will ever have. Being able to watch my brother achieve his goal of being a D1 athlete at a place like Yale, to spend time on that campus, to watch him win a national championship in the house that Crosby built, it doesn't get much better than that. And I can't imagine how devastated we would be if this was his senior year. And his senior year didn't go great, right? He broke his leg. But that was just part of the journey, at least when most of his senior year was taken away from him. It was because he was battling his ass off in a practice and had an accident and broke his leg. But by the way, he worked his ass off and he came back and his last game was with his jersey on, on the ice in the NCAA tournament in New Hampshire. Three to two loss in overtime to BU and Jack Eichel. But I can't imagine how devastated we would be. Do you know how long and hard my brother worked to be a D1 athlete at Yale? And look, and I get it. We've all had to make sacrifices because of COVID. Uh, we've all lost. We've all had things taken away from us. But this is just unnecessary. It's unnecessary. The Ivy League 
did not make these kids safer today. They just didn't. You'd never convince me. I just, I don't get it. All right, end of rant. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Kenny Albert. Uh, we'll do the book club. We'll talk to Glenn Kenny. And then make sure you're back for one last thing. For the first time ever, a guest and a special, special announcement. All right, our first guest today has called over 400 NFL games on Fox. He also calls hockey on NBC. He calls basketball. He does baseball. He does it all. He's one of the great sports play-by-play men in the United States of America and all over the world, and he's a really good friend of mine And this program. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Kenny Albert. What's up, Kenny? How you doing today? I'm great, Steve. How are you? I'm doing all right, hanging in there, you know, feeling pretty good. It's been beautiful in Buffalo. We had like 70-degree weather in November, which is a double-edged sword, though, because you know that lake is staying, staying warm. But Well, it's been, it's been unseasonably warm yeah. all around the Northeast. I was in Washington, D.C. this past weekend. It was 70 degrees. I live in northern New Jersey, not too far outside New York. It's been great for the most part. A little rain today, but uh, hard to believe that it's mid-November. Yeah, see, but if you grew up here... Like I have, you know, that the longer that lake stays warm, you know, eventually the cold air is coming. And when it crosses over that warm lake, that's how we get, you know, nine feet of snow and end up on the news. And, uh, yeah, you know, making, it's coming at some point. Right. Everyone making fun of us. But, uh, you had an unbelievably interesting, uh, summer. And I was excited to talk to you. And I talked to Adrian Dater about this a little bit because, he was one of the few American reporters who went to the bubble. He was in Edmonton um, for the entire time that the Avalanche were there. He did the two-week quarantine and got there. And I know you spent some time in the bubble, too. So I just want to ask you kind of what it was like. Like, what did you think of life inside the bubble? Were you in the outer bubble or did you get into the inner bubble? Like, how, what was your access like? What was it like being in the bubble? And you were in... Toronto or Edmonton or both? Maybe refresh my memory on that, too. So I was in the inner bubble in Edmonton. Okay. And uh, to be honest, Steve, it was a tremendous experience. I enjoyed every minute, every day in the bubble. It was such a unique experience. And I felt fortunate uh, to be one of the only people there uh, on the media side, uh, to right. be honest, and witness some of the great games that were played throughout the Stanley Cup playoffs. I traveled to Edmonton on August 5th. Um, I handled my radio duties for the New York Rangers in early August, and uh, they were eliminated, as you know, in three games by Carolina. So the next day, I was on a flight to Edmonton. Now, before I went, I had to follow the NHL protocol. I took three COVID tests from home over Zoom. A nurse was actually watching me take the test, and I had to seal it up and, and drop it off at a UPS box. Wow. Um, anybody that traveled to one of the bubbles uh, on a commercial flight had to do the same thing. You okay. needed three negative COVID tests in a seven-day span. So when I got on the plane August 5th to travel to Edmonton, I had been home at that point for 146 days, uh, just like most of the country, most right. of the world at that point. Yeah. We, you know, we were all home yeah. quarantining and uh, you know trying to social distance. So it, it was such a bizarre 
time uh, from March 13th on um, because I'm not really used to being home for more than four or five days at a time sure. uh, due to work, you know, during normal times. So it was 146 straight days at home. And then I left on August 5th and I was in Edmonton for 37 days. Now, the first four days, I had to quarantine in my hotel room. I couldn't leave. Okay, leave only four, though. Right. It was a special agreement worked okay. out by the NHL with the Canadian government. Uh, those of us who were going to be in the inner bubble had to do the three COVID tests, like I said, three and negative tests four. in seven days, Okay. then fly, and then spend four days quarantine in the hotel room. And each and every day during that quarantine, a nurse came to my room, and I took another COVID test. Okay. So, so you I had, had seven. four consecutive negative tests uh, once I arrived in Edmonton, and all of my meals were room service. Uh, the great thing was it was during the qualifying round, so there were games on all day from hockey 10 a.m. until midnight. Yeah. <laughs> so during my quarantine, I was watching hockey games all right. day and on the computer and talking on the phone and emails and watching a couple of movies. So it, it wasn't too bad. It went pretty quickly. Where did you cross? And then when I was released from quarantine sure. on a Sunday, um, I walked over to the arena and I, I went to a game. And it was so bizarre because I was not working. I didn't have the headset on. And I could hear everything. You could hear, I was about 20 rows up, and you could hear the sticks and the pucks and the skates and the communication. I was amazed. You know, I've attended thousands of hockey games in my life, but there's usually a, a big crowd in the building, and I have a headset on. But with nobody in the building, the amount of communication is unreal between the players and the coaches and the officials. It's really nonstop chatter. So that was, that was a big eye-opener. And then the next day, I started working. It was the first round. And I had almost, uh, you know, two games almost every day. And it was so much fun. And then once the second round started, it was one game a day. It was both series, Dallas, Colorado, and Vancouver, Vegas. So it was a game a day. And then we had the the tremendous day, uh, game seven of both West series in the same day uh, with myself and Pierre Maguire. And then I worked the first three games of uh, the Western Conference Final between Dallas and Vegas before I had to head back to the U.S. to work – in my NFL schedule, but right. when we'll get it to was that. great. <laughs> I was in the inner bubble. Um, Adrian Dater, who you mentioned, and some of the newspaper reporters were in the outer bubble, right. which meant that they stayed in a hotel outside the bubble, and they had a separate entrance to the arena. They were all the way upstairs in a press box. They couldn't come down to where we were. We yep. couldn't go up to where they were. In fact, the Canadian broadcasters were also in the outer bubble, so I never saw them. Wow. They never saw us because we were separated. The bubble was basically, when I arrived, it was three hotels and the arena, Rogers Place, all surrounded by fencing, and you couldn't leave. After the first round, when there were fewer teams involved, they eliminated one of the hotels. So for most of my time there, it was two hotels and the arena. Now, the JW Marriott, which is a really nice hotel, that's where most of the teams stayed in Edmonton. That's connected to Rogers Place, the arena. I was in a hotel, very nice hotel, about four blocks away. So it was a five-minute walk every day. Um, we had to take a COVID test every single day, everybody in the bubble. Wow. Um, you couldn't leave the fencing, you know, the fenced-in area, except, uh, and I did this once, the NHL set up a bus service to go to and from the CFL football stadium where the Edmonton team plays, and we could go there to get fresh air, to run around, kick a soccer ball, throw a football, kick a football, walk the steps, oh, that's cool. do a lap around the field. Anybody in the bubble had that opportunity. But it was still considered in the bubble because they had security there watching. Nobody from the outside was allowed in. We weren't allowed out. 
And I know they set up something similar for the teams to go play golf, where they shut down the golf course. So uh, the respective team that was on a field trip that day, they were still considered in the bubble because there was there were no other people around. But overall, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, the days became like Groundhog's Day. I would wake up, right. do a couple of hours of work in the morning, go over to take the COVID test around 11 or 11.30. I played a lot of ping pong. They had ping pong tables and golf simulators around the arena and around the hotels. So I played a lot of ping pong. Uh, we were able to eat at four or five different restaurants, either at the two hotels or the arena. They had some food trucks set up outside in the plaza area next to the arena. So it was just a wonderful experience. And I would run into players and coaches and officials and general managers because there, there were only a couple hundred people there. We were, we were all inside this bubble. Right. So uh, that was also unique, running into so many people uh, away from the locker room area, away from the press conferences, you know, as we would uh, attend in normal times. But uh, all of the official press conferences were done over Zoom, and that was for us and for the writers and the writers who were not even uh, in Edmonton or Toronto. That's how we would get our information, but I would bump into a lot of people inside the bubble as well. Let me ask you a couple of follow-ups. Where did you cross over? Did you cross over in Vancouver or somewhere else or right in Edmonton? I flew through Toronto, so I flew out of uh, LaGuardia Airport okay. in New York through so Toronto, crossed... Air Canada, and Were then they... to Edmonton. Was co- it, was, it, it just felt school? so safe. It was the first flight I was on in about five months, and the airlines did an unbelievable job. It was clean, and uh, you know they handed out uh, cleaning supplies and Purell, and I was wearing a mask and goggles, so it, it did feel really safe. The airlines and the airports uh, did a tremendous job, and I, I've been traveling since I got home every weekend for NFL games, and uh, I could say the same thing. All of the protocol and safety measures that uh, the leagues, the teams, the airlines, the hotels have all uh, put in place have been uh, A-plus in my book so far. Yeah, I read that one, it seemed like just that one Poor columnists from Dallas. <laughs> they just would not let over. You know, I don't know if you read that article. Um, that I, I want to say. Well, I know they had. You know, some of the writers had a quarantine for 14 days. Right, was, and uh, they were prepared. Different to. rules and regulations yeah. for uh, folks who were not with the broadcast network or with the league. So I know there were a number of reporters who spent 14 days quarantining in their hotel room when they arrived. Right, like Adrian did. Um. So. I think it was Matthew Tuchuk who said, you know, man, it's so cool here. I think he was talking to, he was saying he was talking to his brother about how he felt bad they weren't in it because it's such a cool thing to, you know, just be hanging around with the guys. Like he said, like you did the ping pong and all that. Like you mentioned the social aspect, a little bit of it, but I mean, that's got to be really unique, even for someone like you, where like, did you feel like when you were around the guys the GMs, whoever, in the inner bubble, did it feel more relaxed than usual? Did, was in general, was everyone's guard down just a little bit more? Was it more kind of a festive kind of hangout kind of a thing? And then also on the other side of that, did you feel like there was also players who just lost patience with it a little bit? Maybe some of the older guys not in the position Matthew is, you know, maybe more family guys with kids. You know, did you get a sense of fatigue as it went on? Like, what about that aspect of it? I think everything you mentioned was accurate on, on both ends of the spectrum. Um, I think that many of the players described it as it had the feeling of a youth hockey tournament when they were right. you know, 7, 8, 10, 12 years old, when, it, when all of the teams were staying in the same hotel and you would run into everybody. Everything with mini I think some teams really embraced it, the fact that uh, they didn't have to travel. You, know, you think about the New York Islanders who 
played in two home arenas for the last few years, and the players lived on Long Island, and they had to travel to Brooklyn for half of their home games. And, you know, they didn't have one home, but in the bubble, first in Toronto, and then when they came out to Edmonton for the conference final, they're in one hotel. You don't have to get on an airplane. Uh, you walk two minutes to the arena. So I, I feel like they were one of the teams that really embraced it. Um, I know that, you know, players with families, and, and there were a number of players whose, uh, you know, wives gave birth during the time that they were in the bubble, and sure. some left, some went home, some did not. But that had to be real tough, not, not to be there for your family. Um, you know, the teams that the, the teams that were eliminated early were only there for, what, you know, 5, 10, 14 days. So you had half the teams that were not necessarily in the bubble for a long time, and it probably felt like an extended road trip during the regular season. The teams that wound up in the, in the final eight and then in the conference final and then in the Stanley Cup final, you know, I think for the most part they became more excited as it moved along because they knew that they were, uh, you know, one of only four eight teams left standing, and they had a legitimate chance to win the Stanley Cup. So yeah. I know the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Dallas Stars really embraced the opportunity that, that they had and uh, seemed to really enjoy their time in the bubble. I'm sure it did get long for some folks. You know, you think about the officials, the referees and the linesmen. Some of them were away from home for 50 or 60 or 70 days. So, um, you know, I think it was a mental challenge for some folks, but others, I feel, uh, really embraced it. And I also felt like it was the safest place in North America because everybody inside the bubble was tested every day. We still had to wear masks, um, aside from when we were working or playing or coaching. You know, you had to wear the masks at all times. Um, but it did feel really safe. Aside from the daily COVID tests, every time uh, you walked into the arena or the hotel uh, twice a day, you had to have your temperature taken. You had to fill out a, a, a questionnaire on your phone on an app, you know, as far as if you've been exposed to COVID, if you've been near anybody that has COVID. And, of course, inside the bubble, all of the answers were no because nobody tested positive. But um, the NHL, the hotels, you know, the teams, the league did a fabulous job in, in setting everything up and, maintaining safety, uh, you know, everywhere we went. And uh, you have to give the NHL and the NBA in their Orlando bubble a lot of credit for uh, putting the plans in place and and getting through the playoffs and and crowning a champion. All right, last thing on this. In terms of the actual hockey, what what do you think? Is there a game? Is there a goal? Is there a moment that you think you'll remember the most in the bubble? To me, it was probably the day when we called the two game sevens, uh, Dallas, Colorado. Sure. OT winner. uh, Went to overtime and, uh, you know, an incredible ending. A player that you never would have expected to be anywhere, uh, you know, even on the ice during during a game seven. Sure. uh, Who winds up scoring a hat trick, Yoel Kiviranta, and the overtime winner for Dallas, who had played sparingly before that and was only in the lineup due to injuries. And then we had Vancouver, Vegas, uh, you know, later that day to call two game sevens in one day. Uh, prior to that was impossible because you never had game sevens played in the same building. Right. And it was something that will probably never happen again. So we also had a couple of three game days earlier, but uh, to me it was the two game sevens uh, in the same day for sure. So you leave the bubble and you do it because you got football. And then, did, so I don't know the mechanics here but at some point you're told you can't work the football games right away was this a surprise to you did you know before we did maybe did you always know and we were the ones surprised like were you blindsided a little bit i know that word has like a negative connotation but i don't mean it like that like 
How did it? How? What were the mechanics of that? Then you come out, you think you're doing football, and then you're not. Well, it's a it's a long story, and uh, fortunately, it was only two weeks, and I was back to work week three, and and now it kind of feels like just a small blip on the radar. But I was first um, uh, told on on Wednesday, the day two days before I was scheduled to leave the bubble. I was scheduled to leave on Friday, September 11th. So on Wednesday the 9th, I was told that uh, there was some small print uh, from the NFL on a questionnaire that we all had to answer before entering a stadium, and it had to do with, were you on an international flight in the last 14 days? Sure. And uh, I guess it fell through the cracks. I wasn't aware. Uh, Many other folks that I deal with on a day-to-day basis were not aware uh, but I certainly understood. Um, you know, the NFL obviously put their protocols in place, and a lot of this stuff changes. You know, as you know, Steve, on a day-to-day basis, there are new rules put in place. Right. Uh, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, monthly. As we learn more and more from the scientists and from the doctors about the disease, so um, you know, it was disappointing not to be able to work that week and the next week because I was I had already done a lot of preparation for the game, and I was looking forward to that Week One matchup. But I certainly understood. Um, it was the protocol that the league put in place, and we still have to fill out these questionnaires every week whenever I go into an NFL stadium. And one of the questions is, have you traveled internationally over the last 14 days? So it was something that sort of fell under the radar, and I uh, was happy to get back to work week three. And, uh, you know, here we are. The NFL has uh, gotten through the first nine weeks of their season, and I'll be headed to Pittsburgh this week for the Steelers and the Bengals. I don't know this, so I'm asking, do the fans – in the stadiums that have fans also answer those questions? To be honest, I don't know. Okay. I know I, I, they yeah, I don't know. do in certain stadiums have to fill out questionnaires, and I've heard public address announcements uh, regarding if you feel any symptoms during the game, you know, please go to a medical station. But I'm not totally uh, aware of exactly what questions fans have to answer, and I think it's probably different in, in some of the stadiums. Sure. Um, you know, we had a couple of games early on in Atlanta and Detroit where there were no fans. They let in 500 friends and family members. I had a game in Pittsburgh with 5,000 fans, a game in Miami with 13,000. So there might be different regulations in different stadiums in different states depending on where the games take place. Right. And I think Dallas has had the most so far. Didn't they have one with 30,000 maybe? I think they did have one with a pretty big crowd. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you one more thing about this. and I, I want to try to put this – I don't, I don't want to – I want to ask a negative question anyway, but is some of the things that we're seeing on TV, is it theater or is it precaution? And I'll tell you what I mean. Like the Pierre Maguire and whoever are in the inner bubble together and they're all following the same protocols and they're all negative. And like you said, they could be walking around in the arena or in the bubble and be together. But then when they interview after the game, there's a giant microphone and they're all this space apart. You know, when you're calling a game with Jonathan Vilma, you know, and you guys are together for the weekend, but then you're in the game and there's this giant shield between you. I'm just wondering, like, do you feel there is a level of theater going on as well? Do you think it's all safety protocol? Like, what do you think about some of those things? And again, I'm not trying to, be any certain thing I'm, I'm just legitimately curious about what i'm seeing no i can honestly tell you steve that that the networks and the leagues are taking so many precautions and 
to be honest, I'm not really with Jonathan Vilma and my production crew a lot during the weekend as we would be in a normal year. Okay. Um, no for dinners. Last, for the no. last tw- for the, right, no, no. no. Uh, I mean, we'll, uh, we have a meeting room where we'll get together, but we're socially distant, and we order food in. Um, during normal years, for the last 26 years, I would fly in on Friday morning and uh, meet up with the production crew and my analyst and sideline reporter, and we would go to practice. We would go to the home team practice. We would sit in a room with players and coaches and do interviews for background information, and then we would go to a big dinner on Friday night, and then on Saturday, we would do the same thing with the visiting team. When they arrive in the city in their hotel, we would get together in a conference room with, with players and coaches. Uh, we've done none of that this year. Everything's over Zoom. Um, we have some Zoom meetings with the Cincinnati Bengals tomorrow, for example. Mm. And then with the Pittsburgh Steelers on Friday, uh, most of us fly in now either on Friday night or Saturday morning, which is later than usual during normal times. Um, I will see them around the hotel. We have a meeting room set up, like I said. We might uh, you know, go down and watch some college football games in the meeting room on Saturday, but we're sitting probably six to ten feet apart. It's a huge room. Uh, we'll do the same thing at our production meeting on Saturday night. And we have to drive our own cars as well. That's part of the protocol. Oh, no uh, rentals. In the past, we would, all, right. we would all pile into one car, five of us together to go to the stadium oh, okay. or go to the airport. All right. Now we all rent our own cars. Gotcha. Um, so we drive to the stadium alone. We're not allowed on the field. You know, we used to go down. I would go from like 11 o'clock until noon before every NFL game and schmooze with some people down on the field, other media members. You might catch up with a player or a coach and ask a last-minute question. We're not allowed down there, uh, which I totally understand. We have to go right up to the broadcast booth. Um, you know, as you alluded to, we're far apart in the booth. There aren't a lot of people in there. So I think uh, Fox and the league has done a great job with, with the protocol and the safety measures that are in place. I can assure you that it's not just uh, what you see on television and then we're having all these meals together and uh, you know hugging one another throughout the weekend. Uh, okay. We're not getting close to each other just out of precaution. We're wearing masks. Now, Jonathan and I are not wearing masks while we're calling the game, but we're probably in most stadiums about 10 feet away from each other. We have a big camera set up in between us. And even when you see us in the on cameras with the NFL and Fox background behind us, we're spaced uh, pretty far apart. All right, last thing on that. Has it affected the broadcasts? You know, all these changes. Like, you did those things last year. I assume so the broadcast will be better, right? So has it affected the broadcast at all? Do you Are, are you worried? The... Sorry, just one more part of that. Are you worried that a lot of these things will stay permanent out of convenience and it will hurt the broadcast going forward. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that part of it? I don't, I don't think the average viewer would, would notice much of a difference, um, you know, as far as us doing player and coach meetings on Zoom versus in person. I think you do build relationships by uh, doing the in-person interviews. You get to know people a little better than on Zoom, but they're still answering the questions and they're still sharing information. Um, so from a, a viewer perspective, I don't think the final product changes very much, uh, you know, doing it this way. Um, you know, I do think, and we've seen this with, with all sports now, um, you know, I did the Ranger playoff games on the radio out of a studio off a TV monitor. I did some NBC games like that before I went up to Edmonton. I know the baseball announcers, uh, called away games for the most part off monitors and, when hockey and basketball do return, I would assume that a lot of us will be doing it that way, at least until there's a vaccine and things are back to normal. So, you know, that that 
changes things as well. Um, you know, working off a monitor, I, I don't think it went as badly as I expected. It, it was a lot. It, it was a lot better than I had expected going into it. And I also called the Stanley Cup final on the radio uh, off a monitor for Westwood One, along with Joe Micheletti. So we we had a couple of huge monitors. We were up at Stamford, Connecticut. Um, there are things that you might not see right away as if you were in the building. It's always a lot better to be calling the game in the arena or in the stadium. You might not see a penalty call initially. You might not see a goalie leave for the bench, for example, if he's pulled towards the end of the game. Right. Um, but, you know, it is doable, and I think that uh, that will somewhat become the new norm, at least until vaccines are in place and some networks and some local affiliates may look to save money by doing it that way instead of traveling uh, their broadcasters and the production folks. But, um, you know, I don't think it affects the final product in a huge way. But uh, there are some things that you certainly don't see as quickly if you're broadcasting a game off a monitor uh, versus if you were in the building. Yeah, as a fan, I felt like watching the, the Stanley Cup final that Doc Emmerich felt behind the game a little bit. Um, you know, but he's well, Doc, Doc was at yeah. home, as you know, yeah. and, and he felt a little you know, bit I behind give, the I game. I give them a lot of credit, the yeah. fact that, that – they were in three separate places. Right. Doc was at home. Challenging. Um, Eddie Olchek was in the booth in Edmonton, and then Brian Boucher was across the way, not necessarily inside the glass. He was behind the glass at Edmonton. But right. uh, it's not easy. And yeah. you know, I worked, I worked a number of games. Uh, you know, from the bubble, I worked a bunch with Eddie where he was at home or he was in Stanford. Uh, I worked a bunch with AJ Malesko who was in Stanford, and there was a bit of a delay, maybe a half second delay, and. Um, you know, it's, it's probably not as easy as it, as it sounds or looks on TV, but, you know, I give all of my colleagues a lot of credit for working through the adversity and, um, you know, putting, getting these games on the air. And, uh, I thought it looked great on television. What, what, what the NHL and Steve Mayer, uh, what they were able to do with the arena, you know, you talk about theater, uh, you know, they really made it, uh, they, they turned Rogers place into a made for TV theater with all the monitors uh, you know, behind the ice, and I, I thought it looked great on TV. Yeah, and hey, anything is better than nothing, right? Anything's better than what we did from, what, March to July or whatever, so. Absolutely. Yeah. The sportscasts are here with the great Kenny Albert being very kind, generous, and honest here. Kenny, a few more things, and I'll let you go. Uh, Jonathan Vilma, and I'll be honest, okay, he's one of the 53, right? He's one of the 53 Saints from Super Bowl Forty Four. Um, so I will admit my bias, but I think he's fantastic. I know I text you. Um, I can't remember what game it was, but one of the Saints games this year you guys called. And, like, I just loved it. I loved Jonathan. And I know you've had a bunch of different partners in Fox. When you did your 400th game, which I think was two years ago, we did a really – people can look it up. I thought a really great podcast interview where we talked about – your 400 games there, your different partners, the playoff games, the great games. So that's in my archives. But what about Jonathan? Working with him so far, how it's going, just anything you want to mention about the new partnership. And again, I love it, and I know I'm biased. I'll admit that off the top. He's one of the 53. But uh, what do you think about your time so far with uh, Jonathan? I think it's been terrific, and I did pass along your message immediately during the next (laughs) commercial break, so (laughs) he he appreciated that. It's been such a different year. We did not have our usual Fox seminar out on the West Coast where all of the announcers and production folks and executives would get together. So in a normal year, I would have spent a lot of time with Jonathan there, getting to know him and 
he would get to know me and, and Shannon Spake, our sideline reporter and our producer and director and, and the associate director and associate producer. And then, you know, we, we did a bunch of Zoom calls while I was in Edmonton uh, with our crew. We even did a, a half of a rehearsal game, believe it or not, uh, via Zoom. And then uh, the curveball when I didn't work the first two weeks, as we discussed. So now here you have a rookie NFL analyst who has to work with three different play-by-play announcers his first three games. Yeah, unreal. He worked with Dick Stockton mm-hmm. week one, Brandon Gordon week two. They both did a terrific job, and then I came in week three. So, you know, he was really behind the eight ball having to work with three different partners. But I think he's done a terrific job. We've worked seven games together. It's his first year doing NFL games. He's done mostly studio work. He did some college football games. So he's still learning some of the nuances of doing live games on television. But he really knows the game and sees the field well. He's He quickly picks up on matchups and things that are taking place on the field. And he has a sense of humor and, and he – he, he tells stories about, you know, his days with Sean Payton and Drew Brees and playing against Aaron Rodgers and, you know, some of the other quarterbacks that we've had over the last few weeks. So uh, I think he's off to a great start, and I've really enjoyed working with him. Yeah, and I think he's got an opportunity. Look at Tony Romo is a unique guy, right? But Tony Romo sees the game as a quarterback very recently in the NFL, and Jonathan Vilma was very much a quarterback on the defensive side of the ball. You know, he was a middle linebacker who was, you know, at least in his time with the Saints and his role there, very much reading and reacting before the snap, you know, the chess match in the Super Bowl, especially with Peyton Manning and all the stuff that Manning did uh, pre-snap. And I feel like he has a good vision of the field in that sense and, and, a, and a good opportunity, unique way to someone who hasn't played very long ago, the position he played, to just kind of view the field that way. And it seems like it's coming across, for me as a viewer at least, in, in the, the time that I've heard you guys together. And he's told some great stories about that Super Bowl, the preparation. He felt that the extra week uh, helped win the game for the Saints. They had two weeks to prepare for the Colts uh, prior to that game. And uh, you're right, he was a signal caller on the field, and he's been great, better than most analysts I've worked with as far as game management situations. He recognizes how many timeouts the teams have left. He knows uh, how much time's on the clock. Should they take a timeout here? Should they wait until after the two-minute warning? So, I've been very impressed with with his work in those situations as well. We mentioned him quickly, but Doc Emmerich announced, you know, his retirement. And I know, like you, like me, like hockey fans, years and years. You know, I remember him from, you know, maybe catching a Devils game or whatever, or when he eventually, you know, had the national job. What do you think about his legacy, his career, thoughts about Doc and, and Doc? You know, unfortunately for us, because we love hearing him, but, uh, you know, ending a Hall of Fame career for sure. Well, I totally agree with everything you said. Um, I, I've described Doc as the Vince Scully of hockey. I think for fans who don't watch a lot of hockey, who know who Vince Scully is, the longtime great voice of the Dodgers, Doc Emmerich is the hockey equivalent. Um, I've known Doc for about 30 or 35 years. You won't find a nicer, kinder gentleman. He's a wordsmith. Um, and he's just the best. He's a Hall of Famer, and he's won the last six or seven sports Emmys in the play-by-play category, <laughs> and for a hockey announcer to do right. that and break through into that category in, in a country where uh, there's so much focus put on uh, you know, broadcasters in the other sports, football, basketball, and baseball, for Doc Emmerich to win that many consecutive Emmys is just remarkable, and he had a wonderful career. Uh, it's great that he was able to go out on his own terms and he can still enjoy life. I spoke to him last week. He's up in Michigan, and uh, just so happy for him. And uh, his career was just brilliant. 
All right, I am not arrogant enough to think that there's going to be some kind of announcement about this here on the Sportscasters. But as a hockey fan and as a huge Kenny Albert fan, not just because we know each other and you've been so kind to me over the last nine years, but I have been very vocal in my social media presence, as minuscule as it may be, that there is no other choice than Kenny Albert for that spot on the hierarchy of NBC hockey broadcasts. I am curious, I guess, are you interested? Have you spoken to them about it at all? Um, Is there anything you can tell me about the possibility of you ascending to that spot? Well, I know you'd love to break a story, but unfortunately (laughs) I have no news to report uh, today. Okay. Um, you know, there are, there are some uncertainties, um, you know, of course, as far as when the NHL season's going to start. Um, the, the NBC contract actually only has one more year left. Uh, the NHL is currently in the midst of, of uh, you know, I would think, right. negotiations. negotiations sure. um, and I know NBC would love, love to keep the contract, and I'm sure there are other networks in the mix, and there have been rumors about, you know, the NHL splitting it up, as the NBA does, with, with two different networks, with Turner and ESPN on the basketball side, so... There are some uncertainties at this point. Um, I've been real fortunate to work the Western Conference Final over the last seven years, uh, the, the conference final that Doc does not work. He's worked the Eastern Conference Final. Um, real fortunate to work a number of the big events, uh, whether it You've was... You've essentially uh, been the, the number two, right? I mean, you. I don't know if it's called that, but, I mean, you've been the... If it's not Doc, it's you for NBC for a while now, right? Right. I mean, I've done, like I said, the Western Conference yeah. Final for yep. the last seven years, uh, whether it was the outdoor game in Colorado Springs this past February, uh, the NHL All-Star Weekend events, you know, the All-Star Friday night events for the last five or six years. Um, I worked game one of the Stanley Cup Final when Doc had to miss it back in 2014. But, you know, to get back to your original question, it would obviously be a, a dream job for any hockey play-by-play announcer uh, okay. you know, to call the big games in the Stanley Cup Final. Um so, uh, you know, we'll see. No, nothing uh, to report as of yet. But uh, like I said, it would certainly be the dream job for any hockey play-by-play announcer. I've also worked the last five Winter Olympics for yeah. NBC doing men's and women's hockey. So uh, I'll be sure to keep you posted, Steve. Absolutely. All right. All right. Uh, last thing. So you're doing a high school football game tomorrow. And Andrew Marchand, who was on this show a few weeks ago, I, I read his article today about it. I, I get the gist. Your daughters went to the high school. Um, they have to stream the games because of the limited availability. And you actually were the one who said, Hey, if there's a Thursday game, I do it. And here we are a Thursday game and you're doing it. Did I miss anything? Anything else you want to add about the high school game you're doing? Cause it's super cool. I'm sure the kids are pumped. I know you've done, you know, zoom preparations with at least one, if not both of the teams at this point. Um, what about what about this high school football game you're doing on Thursday, the day after we tape this? Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. You pretty much captured it. So I have one daughter who graduated from from the high school, and my other daughter is a senior there. And I've gotten to know the athletic director pretty well, Greg Butler. And as a parent in the high school, we've been receiving emails about live streams of sporting events, football games, soccer games, field hockey games, uh, during the last couple of months because there are a limited number of fans who are allowed at the games. It's parents only. So. Um, I texted Greg a couple of weeks ago, and I, I said half-jokingly, half-serious, um, <laughs> you know, I see you're doing these streams without audio. It's video only. 
if you're ever looking for a play-by-play announcer and there's a Thursday night game before I leave on Friday for my NFL assignment, uh, let me know. I'd be happy to do it. So uh, they do have a game tomorrow, uh, Thursday night, against Dumont, and uh, I'll be in the booth doing play-by-play. So it should be a lot of fun. And I was at practice the other day observing from about uh, 20 rows up in the press box, chatted with the coaches, and I'm preparing my uh, charts and spotting boards, and I'll be ready to go tomorrow night. When was the last time you did a high school football game? Not not as long ago as you would think. Okay. Um, I do a high school all-star game for Boomer Esiason every year, and it was canceled this year. But uh, June of 2019, um, it's the Empire Challenge uh, to benefit the Boomer Esiason Foundation and Cystic Fibrosis, and he's raised an unbelievable amount of money through the years uh, you know, for those charities. And I've had the good fortune to work that game for about 20 years now um, out at Hofstra University on Long Island. So I do a high school all-star game every year, but I guess I haven't done a high school game uh, involving two high school teams. You'd probably have to go back to uh, my high school days in 1986 would have been the last high school game that was not an all-star game. I know you go way. I know you know Keith Elaine pretty well and go way back. Did your paths ever cross with Wayne Dean at all? The associate uh, athletic director at Yale from, I guess, 1986 to just this past spring when he retired. You actually cut out for a minute. I missed uh, the last part of what you said. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I was just asking. Uh, just it, it came to my head because I know you had the relationship with Keith Lane. I was just wondering if, you, if your paths ever crossed with Wayne Dean, the associate athletic director at Yale, for any reason. Not that I'm aware of. Um, Keith Elaine and I were together with the Washington Capitals, and, and he's a great guy. I knew Keith pretty well back in the mid-'90s. He was an assistant coach on uh, Jim Schoenfeld's staff, and he may have worked under Terry Murray as well. So we were together in Washington for a couple of years early in both of our careers, and he's had great success, of course. And I ran into Keith and the Yale team about five years ago. Yeah, at a 2013. Restaurant across the street from Madison Square Garden. They were yep. going to play at I was there over the weekend, and, yep. and they were at the Rangers game. So uh, – uh, it was good to catch up with Keith that night. Yeah, I think you texted me right after you saw them. And then I saw my brother like five minutes later, and he was like, oh, that's who I just saw. And I was like, yeah, I heard. Um, did you do any of the college hockey when NBC was putting them on in that era? Or I don't know. Do they still? I, th- I know they've done Notre Dame the last few years. but I, I have not done college hockey for NBC. I did a couple of games. Um, Dave Starman's a, a very close friend of mine who I'm sure you know. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, Huge for We were in each other's wedding party. Oh, wow. We used to do color with me on Baltimore Skipjack games in (laughs) the early 90s. We used to play hockey together in New York, so Dave's a close friend. And we did a couple of games together uh, during the NHL lockout in 2005. We actually did a, I'm pretty sure it was a, it was a Harvard, um, was it a Harvard-Yale game or Harvard? It was a Harvard-Cornell game. It was Harvard against Cornell up at Harvard. So we did a game uh, together. And then we also worked the Women's Frozen Four, um, I think in 2004 in Providence. And uh, Dave was the sideline reporter, and Ellen Weinberg was my color analyst, who uh, many of your listeners probably know as uh, now as Ellen Hughes, who's the mother of Jack Hughes and Quinn Hughes and Luke right. Hughes. <laughs> so Ellen and, and Dave Starman and myself worked together on the Women's Frozen Four if I'm not mistaken, it was back in 2004. Yeah, let's see. The 2004 would have been a Minnesota Gophers over Harvard championship game. Does that ring a bell? Was it in Providence? Uh, let me see. It was in Providence. Yep, that must have been the one. Yeah, that was it. Yep, 
That was in St. Lawrence. Yep, and Dartmouth. Was one of the other teams. And Dartmouth. Right? Yep, three ECAC yep, teams. That was it. That was yep. the one. Three ECAC teams. All right, very last thing. Uh, okay, so Kenny Albert, obviously you hear him on Fox with Jonathan Vilma calling football games. And, yes, I was a lunatic who texted him in the middle of one game to say, thank Jonathan for me, for making all my football dreams come true. And, of course, he's on NBC and all that. You know where to find him. He's at Kenny Albert is on Twitter. Is there anything you want to plug for any reason? Well, tune in tomorrow night for the high school game yes. sure, on YouTube. Uh, I'll have the Steelers-Bengals game this Sunday, which would be a really good one, the undefeated Steelers against Joe Burrow and the Bengals. But, uh, no, aside from that, those are, the, those are the next two events coming up. All right, very last thing, and I'll let you go. Do you remember me randomly texting you? And it's a joke on here, like, you know, who regrets giving me their phone number the most? You're probably, <laughs> you're probably in the running, but... Uh, do you remember me? Te- okay, I listen to Howard Stern every single day of my life, and I don't listen to. I haven't listened to a live show since 2013, so I listen to 1984 to 2013 some capacity every day. And one day, it's a funny story. One day I'm listening, and they were talking about a boxing match they were going to have. I think it was maybe the Crazy Cabby versus Stuttering John one. Maybe it was the. Crazy cabbie versus angry black. Doesn't matter. So I'm listening to them. They're talking about it. And next thing I know, they're talking about Kenny Albert on, on there. And they're, they're talking about, you know, they were going to get you to do it. And then Baba Bowie comes in and he's saying like, oh, I know Kenny really well. And um, I texted you and said, I'm listening to this. And then I think I sent it to you. Um, do you remember that? And what about Stern? I wanted to ask you about Stern real quick because... It was awkward for me because I wanted to tell you about it. But then also there was this other element where they're kind of making a few jokes about your father. You know what I mean? And it's and like I want to talk to you about, but I also don't want you to think like I'm laughing at your father. You know what I mean? Because nobody likes anyone who laughs at their father. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? It's maybe even a little awkward to even ask you about it now. But what about being mentioned on Stern and that interaction and, and maybe... It might be interesting just to see what you think about Stern over the years before I let you go. Well, first of all, no regrets about giving my number out. I appreciate all the text. <laughs> um, I do remember when, when they had asked me to, to do play-by-play of that boxing match, and I've known Gary Delabate for a long time. He used to be roommates with a, with a good friend of mine way back. And uh, I actually just got a text from him recently. He was having lunch with another friend of mine, so wow. we're going to reconnect at some point. Amazing. But uh, – I had a scheduling conflict, so I was unable to do the boxing match. Um, and I think Larry Michael wound up uh, doing yep. the play-by-play, yeah. who was the longtime uh, voice of the NFL football team uh, in Washington, now known as the Washington football team. So I know Larry uh, wound up doing play-by-play on those boxing matches. But, you know, the other, uh, and this would have been post-2013, Steve, so you, I guess you wouldn't have heard it. I but, might have. Uh, like, I've, 20... listened to, I've listened to interviews. Like, I listened to Joe on there, you know. Joe Buck, well, 20, Eddie Vedder was just on. 2016 or 17, I think it was 17, when the NHL All-Star game was in Los Angeles, and I was working the All-Star Friday event for NBC, and Snoop Dogg handled the uh, the pregame concert down on the ice. Okay. And uh, he wound up using a couple of words uh, you know, in his lyrics <laughs> right. that, he probably, that he probably shouldn't have, and uh, they went out across national television, and I, remember I had to that. apologize. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, his, his nickname was DJ Snoopadelic when he was DJing, so I had to, uh, live on NBCSN, I guess, I had to apologize for the language used by DJ Snoopadelic, and it sounded pretty funny. 
uh, my apology. And uh, I wasn't listening live, but a couple of people mentioned to me that Howard uh, Stern, they had played the tape uh, That's uh, funny. of my apology the and next I didn't day. Hear that. And uh, they had a little bit of fun with that. So um, I've never actually met him in person, but he has sat two seats away from me on a number of occasions at Knicks basketball games that I've worked for MSG Network. Oh, uh, yeah. He loves those Knicks We do games. the games right at center court. Yeah. And my statistician is sitting to my left, and on the other side of the statistician is the uh, A-list celebrity of the night who's sure. attending the game is sitting in that seat. So on a number of occasions, I've been sitting two seats away from Howard, but I have a headset on. I'm working, so we can't really have a conversation. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. It, it, it must have been interesting being in New York and, you know, I know you didn't touch on it, so I won't push it, but what what was it like to have your father be, like, a part of the show in that way? Like, did you have to, like, walk away from the show for a while? Did it bother you? And, again, I'm not pushing it if it's something you don't want to talk about. We don't have to get anything specifics. I'm just more asking about your – how it affected you personally, you know, that – No, to be honest, I didn't I didn't really listen a lot back then. Okay, I, I so you were really a listener, listener in New York. In yeah, I've K-Rock. become more of a listener in recent years. So okay. Especially – Especially during the pandemic, uh, I I took long walks every day and uh, had my AirPods in. So I've actually listened probably a lot more in the last year than I have in all the years prior to that. Interesting. Did you hear Vetter the other day? I missed. Uh, you cut out once again. That's weird. Did you hear Eddie Vetter the other day on there? I did. I yeah. did hear part of it. Yes. Yeah. Crazy. Yes. It's crazy for someone. I've been to you know eighty three Pearl Jam shows, and I'm a huge Howard guy. You know, like. It's like a lifelong dream for those past to cross, but you know, for me, they they crossed a little bit too late. But of course, I listened, and it was okay. It was okay. All right, Kenny, I kept yeah, his inter- you know his interviews, especially recently in recent years, are, are terrific. So I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed listening, uh, especially during some of this downtime. Yeah, I listened to all this old stuff, and I <laughs> two hockey related things that were unbelievable. When the Rangers won the cup, the day of the parade. Messier, Leach, and Richter were on. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's unbelievable because Messier, there was just the rumors about Madonna with him. And Leach and Richter, I think, were single. And it's Howard at Howard's best, and it's wild. And then the other thing I just listened to was Claude Lemieux being on after the Devils won when Jackie fake pooped into the Stanley Cup. I don't know if you remember that. I do not remember that one, no. Yeah, they, they, they kind of they took the cup. Ran into the bathroom. Jackie pretended. Jackie says he didn't poop in it. Pretended he did, and then they watched the chaos of you know the NHL flipping out. Oh my God! Did that guy just poop in the Stanley Cup? But why? Well, I'll have to send you the, especially the Rangers interview because it's it's unbelievable to listen to Leach, Messier, and Richter at Howard minutes before the parade. It's crazy, but. Yeah, that's funny. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I'll send that to you. All right, I've kept you way too long. Um, I appreciate you, everything you've done for me the last nine years. Um, you're my guy. Thank you so much. And when you're the number one play-by-play guy in the NHL in the United States, don't forget about me, right? Like <laughs> when you're when soon when you ascend and you you know even further. I'm kidding, of course, but I can't wait for that moment because I know it's going to happen. Well, Steve, I appreciate the kind words. Uh, always enjoy chatting with you. Uh, look forward to doing it again soon. And uh, don't worry, I won't forget about you, and I won't change my number. So <laughs> right. feel free to text anytime. All right, thanks, Kenny. Thanks, Steve.
ball, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. I want to thank Kenny Albert for being on the podcast today. It's always great to talk to Kenny. And that was awesome. That has to be my favorite uh, appearance Kenny's ever had on the podcast. All right. A few things that we have to mention for the book club. Last week or a couple days ago on the podcast, we had Brandon Sneed on. Uh, He was on the podcast to talk about his new book about Lincoln Riley called Sooner. You can check out that interview. Also kind of book club related. Uh, A few years ago, Ben Ryder was on the podcast to talk about his book Astro Ball, which is part of our book club. Uh, And he has a podcast about that called The Edge, which is now complete. You can listen to it from beginning to end. All the episodes are up. He was also on the last episode. Season 10, 22, Ryder and Sneed. All right. In a second, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with Glenn Kenny. Uh, He has a book called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. We've been talking about this one for a while. We're going to finally do the interview. Next up, Jeff Duncan. He wrote a book called Peyton and Breeze, The Men Who Built the Greatest Offense in NFL History. I mentioned on the last podcast, there's a book called by Bob McKenzie called Hockey Heroes Volume 2. And I'm a little nervous about that because I sent an email to try to to the publicist to try to schedule the interview and I did not hear back. So I'm going to pump the brakes on that one. We'll see what happens. I also didn't hear back from Daryl Belfry. So he might not be interested in doing anything with his book, Belfry Hockey, which is fine. Uh, it's not featured or anything, but I thought it'd be cool to maybe get him. Not sure if that's going to happen. But for now, uh, this is it for 2020 in season 10. Uh, We're going to finish with uh, Glenn Kenny now. Uh, Then we're going to have, on the next episode, we're going to have Jeff Duncan. And we're going to have Bob McKenzie, or we're not. But that's it for the book club, season 10, 2020. And then, of course, in January of 2021, season 11, the 10th anniversary of the Sportscasters, we will pick it back up. All right, that's it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Glenn Kenny. Our next guest today is an American film critic and journalist whose work you may have read in the New York Times, RogerEbert.com, or in his new book, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Glenn Kenny. Hey, Glenn, how are you doing today? Oh, not too bad, Steve. How are you? Doing very good, very good. Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. Really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, love Goodfellas. It's maybe my number one. Um, you know, it's hard to de- it's it's hard sometimes to with movies because it's like sometimes you're like comparing ma- made uh, you're sp- comparing a movie like Goodfellas to you know Anchorman or something. It's like 
sure. all right what's my favorite but goodfellas is certainly in the conversation and uh, i was excited to uh to read this and to get you on let me ask you this kind of to start uh it's it's an anniversary year for goodfellas and i'm assuming that was done on purpose right did you kind of plan out releasing it this way and and, and what was kind of the what was kind of the why a book about goodfellas yeah, i'm always curious as to you know um why authors decide to write the books that they write so i wonder i mean i think it's you know it's different it's different nowadays than it used to be i mean you can't uh it's you, you can't just you know unless you have independent means uh you can't just sort of say well i'm going to write this book now um you know you have to have a book deal you have to have advance money um so you have to have a lot of uh you have to have a lot of um you know ducks in a row if you're going to live and at the same time as you're writing a book uh and yes we did arrange the writing to coincide uh so that we'd be able to that my publisher Hanover Square Press who are great people and uh real terrific collaborators they were very keen on getting it out for um for the in time for the 30th anniversary of the uh, of the movie so that was definitely a factor uh and uh, it meant that i needed to write um put things together a little more uh a little faster than i might have otherwise i think the next project i'm going to do with uh, hanover square is going to take me two years instead of one year uh but uh i mean i i had known a lot about the movie prior to uh having got the the book deal and the 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 book was the movie was something i had wanted to write about for a long time i i felt a special connection to the picture because i first met martin scorsese as a journalist when he was editing Goodfellas, which at the time was uh, titled uh, Wise Guy. And, uh, you know, his excitement when discussing the project was really palpable and interesting. And, uh, you know, um, so having, 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 uh, having learned about the film from him in 1989 and then seeing the movie in 1990, less than a year after meeting him in December of 1989, uh, it had a... uh, it, 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 it had a, it, it just sort of felt right. It felt right to, uh, you know, I wasn't on the ground floor. I wasn't there for the making of the film, but listening to him talk about the movie and then seeing how that movie's reception changed his life. Um, you know, Goodfellas definitely uh, is, is a, is a uh, turning point in Scorsese's career in terms of, uh, you know, his ability to get movies made and his ability to continue to work within the, system of um, of uh of uh of hollywood studios at the time which is you know very very different from what it is uh today even sure uh right today's so, yeah, legend there was, there are, yeah yeah, yeah. yes that's one way of putting it yeah so there's there are a lot of different uh different uh points of significance that significance that made the the, the book seem uh, like a good idea when you love a movie for 30 years or whatever, you know, 25, you kind of look like, I just always assumed, you know, Friday came when it was released and the theaters were packed and it's not like it was a bomb. Obviously, I think it made 50 million, definitely more than the budget. Uh, but it was interesting in the book to kind of learn about how, you know, people were in 
private screenings or going up to release. It it wasn't maybe testing that great. People were stunned by the violence, I guess. And yeah, it was a, it, it became a modest hit. It did well enough for Warner Brothers, and then after becoming a modest hit financially, it definitely seeped into the culture in such a way that it became an inescapable movie in a way. Um, but yes, the previews were held, uh, you know, the movie was made most made in New York by New York filmmakers, uh, about, uh, New York people, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, the violence was, 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 uh, very explicit. And the movie kicks off with a scene of, of really harrowing violence. And, uh, you know, for Warner brothers, they, they did the usual thing that they did at the time was previews, previews. Are, uh, you know, we don't talk about them as much as we used to, but they used to be a very big deal. People would come to see a particular movie and they'd be told, hey, you're going to see the movie you came to see, but also you're going to see another movie if you'd like to hang out and we'd like to hear your thoughts about it. And they ran Goodfellas in, you know, like Orange County, these very sort of conservative, Republican based, um, you know, not not just conservative politically, but conservative culturally. Sure. Yeah. Uh, portions of California. Still. And people, people were appalled, you know, they were like the, the opening scene of, of this guy bleeding to death in the trunk of a car and then being stabbed repeatedly, uh, to, to hasten his actual death and, and then shot. And this is the way the movie opens. And people were like, what the hell is this? And to make matters worse at one of the, uh, at one of the previews there, there were some technical problems and the movie wasn't, uh, wasn't really unspooling properly. The sound was dropping out. There was all sorts of uh, issues with the playback and people were that much more alienated and upset by it. So, you know, Erwin Winkler told me people were shouting for, you know, bring us Scorsese, you know, like they wanted his head. <laughs> his head on a platter. Um, so, yeah. So that went very, those, those previews went very, very badly and people were uh, very confused and concerned and at a, you know, and then the studio was like, well, we got to handle this. You have to do something. And Scorsese says, he says, uh, no, I don't actually, my contract says I get to, right. I get this kind of cut. And, uh, and he just sort of sat and said, no. And the movie came out, uh, as it was, as, as Scorsese wanted it to. Uh, and, uh, but the thing is, it started getting good reviews from critics. You know, once it starts getting uh, kind of a reputation outside of this realm of previews and outraged audiences, and you know, is is screened in places you know that do it properly, suddenly the movie starts getting this reputation—not reputation, but this you know—becomes well received, and the studio is like, "Well, hey, we've got these reviews. Let's run with this." And that was kind of the thing that they that became a, a, I mean, reviews are are generally pretty significant in terms of marketing a movie, but they really kind of hung everything on the marketing of the movie to reviews at first. And it worked. It got people into theaters. It made people curious. Let's talk about the opening scene for a second, because it's come up a few times already. I was listening to Talking Sopranos, a podcast with uh, Michael Imperioli, who's in the uh, Goodfellas, and uh, Steve Sharippa. And they're talking about the episode where Dr. Melfi gets raped of the Sopranos. And they were talking about how David Chase, you know, wanted to, he, he felt like people were getting too blinded by 
the characters. They were too in love with these guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And, he, yeah. you know, David Chase felt like it's time to remind the audience, you know, who these guys really are Um, in season three there. And sure. Michael especially was theorizing that he thought Scorsese maybe started the movie where he did to kind of set the tone that these guys are bad guys, you know, murderers, you know, and as opposed to, you know, starting at the beginning of the story and then you know, falling in love with the the mobsters the way we yeah, some kinds, no, sometimes can, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely true. It's, yeah. Not only, it's, not only a, it's not only a dynamic way to open the movie, because it definitely grabs your interest if you can hang with it. Because, you know, there are some people who just, you know, a lot of the people who were shown the picture uh, just sort of, you know, ran out of the theater. <laughs> uh, you know, they started timing the walkouts, and that scene was, was a big one. But if you can hang with it, yeah, that's a very, it's a very brutal and a very abrupt opening. And it also, but it also sets up the, what, one of the things that makes the movie interesting is that knowing what you know at this point, the movie then sort of pulls back and it kind of makes you like them anyway. And it, it continues to play this kind of double game with the audience where you have this sort of attraction repulsion dynamic working where you know all about their amorality their lack of ethics, their hypocrisy, and yet there there are scenes where you're looking at their interactions and you're saying, "Well, this is fun. It's yep. fun to to just sort of not care and it's do intoxicating your thing and get away with it." Yeah. So you know that's very deliberate and very. I think he. I think the 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 level at which he uh, he modulates that. Uh, shows a shows the control and the the real vision of of a of a, of a very masterful filmmaker. I'm an Italian American New Yorker, you know. Um, mm. Yeah, my my, you know, my grandmother uh, was born in Italy, so you know, I'm. I guess sure. why does that make me second generation? You know, Italian American, mm-hmm. and you know, half of my family lives in Staten Island, the other half came to Buffalo, and. When it's movies like this and Sopranos as well, you know, I watch them and I see my, I, I relate, you know, I see my family like, and I was thinking about the scene where when we catch up to the beginning and they go to Joe Pesci's mother's house and she's yeah. up and, and then they start eating, right? You know, it's like I'm at that table and yeah. it's like, I would say to people, and and with Sopranos as well, like, you don't understand, I relate to that. And they're like, oh, your family's gangsters. It's like, no, not that part. The talking, yeah, no. the eating, you know, all the cultural stuff. And, yeah, you know, the it, unconditional love of the mother who will get up in the middle of the night and make food for you and your friends. Right. Uh, that's also a big deal. Right. All of that, all of that stuff, it, it's... You know, and and Sopranos and Goodfellas are unbelievable examples of it. And um, I guess I was just wanted to talk. I wanted to have you talk a little bit about uh, the culture and 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 maybe the because you touch on it a little bit of, in the book. And then the you know the kind of the battle that has raged for decades as well about you know is this a, be- a negative portrayal of Italians? All that kind of thing that also goes along with it. I know Sopranos suffered from this a lot. You know, I've always just felt like I've embraced it so much. Like I just love 
you know, my grandparents are passed away. I love when I can just kind of fall back into that. It, it, and it doesn't, you know, I don't need to feel embarrassed. I don't feel like with the mobster no, stuff, because, you know, it's, you know, it's a movie or a, a huge, TV show. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a, I don't have a lot of patience uh, for people who get very uh, agitated about this idea of a negative portrayal of a, of, of a, of a, of a group. I mean, this silly. is silly. Yeah. Silly. Th- this is, a, you know, this movie is based on several, layers of lived reality you know there's Scorsese's own background uh you know and upbringing there's um you know there's the Henry Hill story there's what uh what he brings to it um and so you know they're not just making this stuff up with this agenda to like you know create a a portrayal of this group that's going to be you know negative they're 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 talking about their actual lives, you know? So, you know, that has to be factored into your assessment of what they're doing. Um, They're being honest, you know, and, uh, you know, people are, people are multifaceted. Nobody is wholly good and nobody, you know, with few exceptions uh, and nobody is wholly bad either. I mean, there are definite, uh, you know, there's definite <laughs> gradations and some people are way more awful than they are good. And some people are very much more good than they are bad, but there's no, no one's, nobody's perfect, let's say. Sure. Um, and, you know, to show the dynamic of the family, to show the, um, the language, the love and concern, and yep. the liveliness of, of what goes on in these households is not, um, you know, is is a uh, is, is is just you know part of part of a, a kind of a, a portrayal that's multifaceted. Um, and why shouldn't it be? It would be insult. The, the bigger insult would be to lie. I I, I always think. Yeah, I I, I kind of said, and, and you mentioned Henry Hill, and I wanted to talk about him for a second because. You know, I've been mentioning I've been watching this movie as long as I can remember watching movies. I've also probably not had very many days since 1994 where I didn't listen to Howard Stern. Uh, I still listen yeah. to Howard Stern literally every day, uh, and I haven't mm-hmm. listened to a new Howard Stern show since 2013. Um, yeah. But Henry Hill was a big part of Howard Stern for a long time, and he's—I know—it was very helpful to find those interviews. Oh, I wanted to ask you about that because he's an unbelievable character, like the human being. Uh, you know, we call people characters. Like he was an unbelievable character on the show, where sometimes he would be straight, not intoxicated at all, and it was denial, denial, denial. I'm not talking about anything. Then he would come yeah, on, yeah. and he'd be a little intoxicated on God knows what. And the stuff that would spew from him and the unbelievable drama of Spider's sister confronting Henry Hill on the Howard Stern show um, about where her brother's body is and begging for information so her family could have closure. Just unbelievable. I I just wanted to ask you, and you kind of already let the cat out of the bag that you did listen to it, but I wanted to ask you just as a Howard fan where his appearances on Howard where you know if that if you use that at all in terms of your research and obviously you sort of let it yeah, out no, of the I bag, but have, I, yeah, I didn't. In, I did not include everything. I did not include the exchange with Spider's sister and and Henry. I talked mainly about Henry 
Henry as an alcoholic and calling Stern drunk and sort of talking about how, uh, talking about how much he hated himself, you know, whether or not you, you bought into that or, or not, if that was uh, credible to you, it, it certainly sounded credible. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the way that, the way that Stern handled him, you know, Stern wanted to, um, you know, uh, Stern, you know, having honed his interview chops over the years, uh, was very uh, interested in, in exploring the depths of, of, of Hill's own, um, you know, damage and dysfunction and finding out about, you know, his, his addictions, his alcoholism and how it, how it, how it really affected him uh, uh, as a person. And so I wanted to discuss that to a certain extent. For sure. That was very important to me. I thought the main theme, if you wanted to break it down to all of his appearances, is what level of involvement did Henry Hill have, right? It was, was he the guy with the ice pick in his hand or was he standing behind the guy with the ice pick, right? And he would flip flop depending, I would say, on his level of intoxication. On where yeah. he stood when he was when he was very drunk, he he'd admit to anything. And he had the ice pick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He would make up a lot of stuff, and you know, none. That's not. That's probably not true. Okay, so that, uh, that's that's what I wanted to ask you. I would you. say, given my conversations with Edward McDonald, the prosecutor who uh, who um, you know who got Henry into the witness protection program and sort of befriended him over the years, I think uh, you know. Because, he, because among other things, uh, and I don't say this because I think, well, Henry was not that, you know, Henry wasn't, was too good a guy to do that. No, it's because he wasn't considered competent to do that. You know, he did not have the, um, he was not, he was not considered a serious person by the people he was working with. In other words, they liked him around because he was fun he got certain stuff done. He was he was smart. You know his his schemes, the the the, the point shaving scheme at Boston College and stuff, kind of worked out okay. But in terms of his actual, you know, uh, late competence, uh, you know, that's not a uh, that's 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 not something where he was considered to be. Uh, um, worthy of putting trust in let's say so based on your vast knowledge your opinion is not the guy with the ice pick in his hand but more likely i would say the guy behind yeah okay interesting interesting and you know if anyone we'll never actually we'll never actually know sure you know (laughs) yeah yeah and and if anyone is interested there's a great clip pack out there on the internet you can find of all of his appearances on stern and it's a it's a fascinating uh journey through the many many levels of intoxication of henry hill uh i've mentioned i've mentioned sopranos a bunch of times and you know when i got the book really any book one thing i like to do for whatever reason i like to kind of flip through the index and and you know think of different things that i might be really curious about and sopranos was one and it you know there's a bunch of different mentions the Sopranos on the show. And I I mentioned earlier, I've been listening to that Talking Sopran- Sopranos podcast, which is pretty great. Uh, and especially as Sharipa gets better at it, gets better. But um, 
one thing that they are really good at is pointing out all of the different kind of nods to Goodfellas and Godfather uh, that exist in Sopranos, and there's many. Um, but what about, this is what I was more interested in, and you touched on it in the book, is kind of the fact that Goodfellas was the, really highlighted the anti-hero in a way that later uh, TV would really, really um, expand on. Like, there's a book by a guy named uh, uh, Brett Martin called, um, wow, what's his book called? I'm going to blow the title of the book. I'll think of it in a second. But it's about the idea of all the different anti-heroes in this golden age of television. And it's really interesting mm-hmm. to find the roots of it in Goodfellas in a lot of ways. And certainly Sopranos nodded to that. What about the rise of the anti-hero uh, in Goodfellas and the relationship that... I mean, in a way, that's kind of the biggest deal uh, yeah. for, for, for the influence of, um, of, of Goodfellas. Um, because, you know, for instance, uh, there's no, um, there's no, well, well, uh, Mad Men, the TV series is not a crime thing. Um, the, um, the anti-hero aspect of Mad Men, uh, you know, with, with Don Draper, right. The complexity and that direct. That derives directly from the Sopranos, sure, uh, for sure. So, and 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 then you have Breaking Bad. So, in a way, um, you know, this is all this is all connected. Uh, you know, and Breaking Bad is crime. So, um, yeah, the antihero. I think you, you're really that's very astute. Um, that you know, that's the main influence um, on f- that 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 got passed down sort of, you know, from Goodfellas to The Sopranos to Mad Men to Breaking Bad, very much so, yeah. And the book is called Difficult Men. I don't know why I couldn't think of that in the moment. But Difficult yeah, yeah, Men yeah. by Brett Martin, and it's a great book about uh, the the many different anti-heroes, even like uh, Deadwood, you know, Al Swearingen. Mm-hmm. Sure, no, no, you know. yeah, that's there. Yeah, that's it too. Yeah, uh, and, and, you know, like, thank, thank you, Goodfellas, right, for that kind of leaving that mark on the culture and um, it evolving over the years and expanding on TV. Uh, the book is called yeah, Made yeah. Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. Yes. And I made the mistake in an email of being autocorrected. I'm standing by that, uh, by my phone, trying to make me say it was uh, Mad Men. Yeah, we did flirt with that kind of confusion, not deliberately, but we knew that that could be a problem, but it hasn't been a problem so far, so I'm very excited. Yeah, no, the book is called Made Men, uh, the story of Goodfellas, and uh, Glenn Kenny is the author. You can find Glenn, conveniently, if you'd like, on Twitter. Uh, It's a good place for links and information from what Glenn is up to. Glenn, what's the handle? I know there's an underscore in there or something. It's Glenn right? underscore Kenny. Yes, Glenn underscore Kenny. I am sports underscore casters because some person All right. out there is sports casters and they tweet. what They know they somehow know exactly what the amount of days is to keep it you know, active. And they'll, they'll tweet uh, just in that amount of time. Last thing, I'll let you out, of, out on this just for the fun of it. Uh, I'm sure you've seen Goodfellas uh, thousands of times, like I have. 
when you when you think about Goodfellas and just a fun moment, what to use the scene or moment? What's your favorite thing about the movie? Let's just go out on something fun. What, what's your what's your scene? What's your Goodfellas moment that resonates you know, with you the, the most? You know, I think the end is always the end always kills me. The the I live get to live the rest of my life like a schnook, and then the the music coming in and Joe Pesci in that anachronistic suit pointing the gun at the camera and shooting, and suddenly it's the Sid Vicious My Way. Talk about you know ending your movie on a high and a low simultaneously. There's there's never been anything like it. I it's something I say in the book. I think. You know, um, it's just one of those things where I wish I could see it again for the first time um, as many times as possible because it's just a it's just a killer ending. Yeah, and of course, everything that came be- everything that came before it is pretty killer too. Yeah, I always have that. That hint I hope to- that's not a spoiler. My God, <laughs> <laughs> now, I think a thirty year old movie. I think I'll sp- you know. <laughs> Jeez, uh, but look, I always have that hint of jealousy. Like anytime I hear someone's like starring Sopranos for the first time, or you know, watching a movie yeah. like Goodfellas for the like the the just to be able to experience it again without knowing would be amazing. All right, again, the, the yeah. book is called Made Men: The Story of Goodfellas. The author is Glad Kenny. He's nice enough to spend it just spend a half an hour with right, us cool. talking about it. Uh, anything else you want to mention or plug or anything like that? Well, I'm just, you know, I hope, I hope that, uh, I think, you know, as this, as the spinal tap guys in the ad for Christmas with the devil, like to say, it makes a great gift too. So I'm hoping people will get this book for their dads, their yeah. uncles, uh, their sons, their daughters, whoever, uh, in time for Christmas. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I and I hope people enjoy it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for thanks for letting me read it and promote it with you. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Have a great day. I want to thank Glenn Kenny and Kenny Albert for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode of the Sportscasters and all episodes on my SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash caster. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Don't forget my friend Peter Winson, the greetings from Allentown podcast at GF Allentown pod. He has a new episode he put up today, November 1991, WWF Superstars, I believe. And he has now done two of the four episodes of Superstars from November of 91, a sweeps period. Uh, And that was up today. I think it's 91. Hope it's not 90. Whatever. It's on his page at GF Allentown Pod for more information. Uh, Also... I am going to be on a Place to Be Nation podcast. I mentioned it in the last uh, podcast. It's called Making Mount Rushmore, and I believe it goes up Monday. Uh, For more information about that, at Place to Be Nation on Twitter. Okay, I think that's all the plugs for me for right now. Uh, One last thing today, and it's going to be a little bit different because for the first time in the history of One Last Thing, I have a guest who's going to help me make the announcement that I teased at the top of 
of the uh, podcast and mentioned that I would do it now. So we have an announcement, and I have a friend to make it with me. Uh, he is from New Jersey. He is a huge fan of the rock and roll band Motley Crue. Uh, we both agree that our jaws dropped uh, when we first heard Afraid, when they debuted it on whatever award show that was or whatever. It's like, holy shit, the crew is back. Um, he's also a huge fan of wrestling. Uh, he's an all out and out maniac in the goodest sense of the word. He's my friend, Dave Rollins. What's up, Dave? How you doing, buddy? Thank you, my brother. Thank you, my brother. Thank you for reaching out and thank you for listening to me. And finally, the strongest force in the universe gets its own podcast. Yes. Hollywood Dave Rollins is here with me Uh, today. And and you can kind of call this my vignette. Uh, podcast, my podcast debut vignette right here. We're here to make an announcement, and this is what <laughs> it is. Here, let me set it up a little bit, Dave. So, of course, I've been doing the Sportscasters since January of 2011. Uh, so it's going to be the 10-year anniversary of the Sportscasters next year. Uh, along the way, I did a Football Nation, a football-exclusive podcast, a Sportscasters football edition for the website football nation in 2013 did that for one year they wanted me to do it for a second year but if you remember my 2013 that was uh the year that from uh march to what was it mid-april i was in the hospital and had a big surgery so i didn't feel comfortable uh, re-signing another contract over the years i've also done a podcast that's still current a side project with my friend Peter Winston called the Adams Division Podcast. And that will return soon. We either one more in 2020 or in 2021. Uh, but the Adams Division Podcast lives on. Also, about a year or two ago. Uh, oh, before I get to that, I should also mention I did a podcast with my friend Adrian Dater called The Lonely End of the Rink. And we did that for a couple years. And we still do Adrian Comes On or I Go On His Podcast. It's not a formal show still, but of course, Adrian's a good friend of mine, and he's still around here or there. About a year or two ago, I did a pilot of a show called Arm Drags and Rainmakers, and it was with a guy from Boston named Mike Abelson, and he's a really good kid, and he meant well, and we had a great idea. The idea was, if you heard the one or two episodes we did, the idea was going to be that on arm drag shows... I would expose him to wrestling from my era. And on Rainmaker shows, he would expose me to the newer stuff that he loved. And it was actually a good concept. And I liked the stuff he recorded. uh, But although his heart was in the right place, he just he just couldn't make it work. So and and he asked me, you know, please, I'm going to do better. And no. Not going to happen, buddy. Thanks. Good try. The point is, is I've been wanting to add a wrestling podcast. And Dave and I, uh, Dave and I were talking a couple days, uh, a week ago, maybe now. How long ago was it, Dave, we were talking? Maybe about a week. Uh, I think Saturday night. Yeah. Friday or Saturday night. Yeah, it came together kind of quick. But we were talking, and we were just kind of talking about how he hadn't done a podcast. You know, I could kind of tell he kind of felt on the outside of it, wanted to do it, but Maybe didn't know how to break in. Yeah, I'm not the most technical savvy. Yeah. Not an 80-year-old man either, but, you know, kind of in the middle there somewhere. And I had an idea, 
for a while that, man, there's this topic and I'd love to do a podcast on it. And I I'd, actually, before I even talked to Dave, I'd done a little bit of research on whether or not this idea I had existed. You know, was someone already doing this and I didn't know about it? You know, I looked into it a little bit and I found out that, you know, no, I, I didn't find anything. And I mentioned that Dave is a passionate fan of Molly Crew, but I did not mention yet his other true passion. That was the Letterman show, by the way, with the phrase <laughs> in uh, Out the Street. They de- debuted that song. Right. Oh, was it was it Letterman that, that it was yeah, on? Yeah. American just, Music Awards, they did uh, Shout Out the Devil 97. Right, yep, I remember that. But yeah, oh, I remember when Afraid, yeah. when I watched that on Letterman. Oh my God, I was like, wow. Yeah, we, we, could go, we could go off on a whole tangent about that right now, but I don't think you have the time. Right, we, we want to focus on, <laughs> on his other passion. Yeah. And that passion is his love for the immortal Hulk Hogan. So, One and the only. Dave and I have decided that we are going to do starting in 2021. Now, we will be recording a pilot the week of Thanksgiving, and we will release that in 2020. But the regular bi-weekly podcast will debut in January of 2021. And Dave, I think we're this close to a name. We have a few ideas. One 24-inch podcast, which feels like the name to me. I, that well, when we were just discussing this, uh, whatever it was, Friday or Saturday night, you know, it was over Facebook Messenger, and you know, we had some beers on me, whatever you want to say, and that's the only one I remember the, the the next day out of whatever we said. Yeah, so, we're we're toying around with some other things. My Tammy, yeah. what is Tammy like? She really she likes, likes uh, when it comes crashing down the Hulk Hogan podcast, which yes. I also like almost as much as 24 inch uh, podcast. Those two names are probably in the lead. Uh, We haven't settled on it yet. My guess is it'll probably be either 24 inch podcast or when it comes crashing down the Hulk Hogan podcast. One or the other. One or the other. I think what I might do is I might have Chris who does the logos for me play with one for each name. So we okay. can kind of get a visual look at it, and then maybe that'll help us decide. Yeah, the only thing with the twenty-four inch pike uh, podcast. Yeah, tell him why we're name, worried. Hulk's name is not in it. And, oh, why we're worried? I yeah. can say that. Yeah, uh, you know, because our whole, uh, you know, Terry Bollea's penis and Hulk Hogan's uh, penis was different. And yeah, a few people have that, said to me. Know. A few people have said to me that that's a dick joke. Twenty-four inch podcast. Anyway, and, I'm like, and even if it wasn't for that, it's still a dick joke. But could be. Who Could jokes be. about having a 24-inch dick? Well, you know what I mean? Um, we, you'd have to go on to Pornhub or something like that and uh, maybe maybe do some research first <laughs> I mean, and find out. I actually Googled the biggest dick on record is 13 and a half inches. Oh, there so, you go. Then. So if so. you're joking about having a 24-inch, you're saying you're 11 inches bigger than the biggest ever? Come on. Nobody, yeah. nobody makes that joke. But <laughs> like Dave said, there was this thing in the Gawker trial uh, where – Hogan testified under oath that when he was on the Bubba the Love Sponge show talking about his penis, he was actually talking about Hulk Hogan's penis, not Terry Bollea's penis, because he doesn't have a 10-inch pot. The kayfabe uh, even comes to the court, brother. Right. So, (laughs) but it'll probably be one of those two names. And and here's kind of what 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 the show's going to be. So, we're going to do it bi-weekly, which means in a quarter of the year, 
or three months of the year, uh, that would give us about, what is that, 12 shows to play with? Wait, let's see. Uh, four weeks a year, that's six shows to play with in a quarter. Okay. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm new to this. So. <laughs> right. So there's okay. 12, 12 months in a year. Okay. Uh, which you means if you, if you divide that by four, it's three. So three months, there's four months in a week. That gives us 12. So six shows for biweekly in a quarter. And my okay. thought is that we would do one interview show where we find someone in wrestling, uh, media, pop culture to come on the show and talk about Hulk Hogan with us. And plug their shit. And plug their yeah. shit. And it, hey, yeah. like, okay, let's just say, for an example, we get Lanny Poffo on the show. Just whatever. Uh, we probably talk to Lanny about his family, about Macho Man, about why the hell he moved to Ecuador, you know, about whatever else he's doing. And then, of course, we're also going to talk to him about Hulk because it's a Hulk podcast. That's Lanny what. Papa moved to Ecuador? Or is that yeah. The... Yeah. Really? Some... That, that one slipped right by me. Yeah, something like that. And he's like into real estate there and he's buying and selling. He lives right on the beach. Lanny is an interesting guy. A I mean, very, very interesting guy. Apparently, some interesting talents, but uh, we're not going to get into that. That there, you know, other yeah, yeah. Well, he's gotten into it before that he, he can suck his own. Has, penis. Has yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's one out of every. Uh, I, I meant that he was a good frisbee thrower. Oh, of course, that's all I meant. Yeah. Of course, I uh, I made a mistake there. I misread you. <laughs> uh, so that's one out of every six we'd throw in an interview. Uh, we would also have super shows where they're two parters, and that's what we're going to start with in the pilot. Uh, the two parters are going to focus on. Matches from pay-per-views or Saturday night's main event, big feuds, uh, the the Andre feud, the uh, Mega Powers, the um, King Kong Bundy, which is actually what we're going to start with, and we'll talk about earthquake. that more yeah, in a minute. So. Yeah, Earthquake, Slaughter. Slaughter, the big ones that culminated in the big events. We'll do those in two parts, and we'll do one of those a quarter. The other shows, the remaining ones, would be the normal shows, which will be one-parters where we look into angles and matches that occurred in the smaller shows, the house shows, the, you know, superstars, which he didn't wrestle on there much. But, you know, anything, there. anything in the smaller – so, for example, 85 – These are already my favorites. This, yeah. These will be my favorite kind of shows. 85 versus Morocco. The three-parter at MSG. Three in a row. Right. April, May, June. That would be what we do most of the time, and that's a one-parter. So, like, out of six, you figure three regular shows, the two-part mega show, and the interview show. And we just kind of repeat that every quarter. And that's what we're looking at doing with the tentatively named 24-inch podcast or it comes crashing down. When it comes crashing down, when? the Hulk Hogan podcast. Uh, but could that be? It, it comes cra- when it take when out. It comes crashing down. Well, it could be. We, again, we we the play guy that with sets it. it up with the right. We'll yeah, pl- okay. we'll play with that. Uh, okay, so this is what we're gonna do first, and we're gonna record this on um, Thanksgiving week. It's gonna be a two part show, and Dave and I are going to break down the WrestleMania two main event, Hulk Hogan versus King Kong Bundy. Now, Dave, talk a little bit about what we've talked about in terms of how we're going to cover it. Because it's not just that we're going to look at a 10-minute match or 20-minute uh, match. No, um, no. Tell them what we're, we're, what we're thinking. 
Well, what I'm thinking is start maybe a few months earlier because this this one didn't have much of a build. It was kind of thrown together. On right, that, part uh, one. Saturday night's main event. So I'll take a look at the garden shows uh, with Savage um, of December, January, and February. Uh, we'll take a look into the Real American video that's debuted around that same time. Right, the, the events on Saturday night's main event. The events on Saturday night's main event, the Slammy Award. So just all kind of that. The little, rib little injury. There. The, rib the rib injury. injury and actually how yep. he was wearing the tape. And I don't yep. want to get it. I don't want to spoil it. Be, be a spoil our podcast. <laughs> I'm right. into all that right now. But, but the, uh, yeah, all that kind of stuff. The point is, is yeah. part, part one, we'll look at the build. Uh, and that will be the main focus. And then part two, we'll look at the match and the postscript. You know, where yeah. does Hulk go from there after the match? Uh, and that's what we're going to do to start. We, we chose Bundy. I kind of chose Bundy. Uh, I, and, and Dave kind of agreed with me, I think. The reason I like that one to start is it's a good one to get our feet wet because while it's important and worthy of the two-parter, and I wanted to do a two-parter to start because it just gives us a chance to do two episodes. But it's not Andre. It's not one where we want to have six months of chemistry built up. You know, right, or mega powers, or you know, any of the top ten shows. I didn't even consider those are getting saved a little bit longer. Yeah, like I said, WrestleMania two is like the nightmare on Elm Street two of WrestleManias. You know what I mean? Beautifully said. Yeah, beautifully (laughs) said. Yeah. So we're really, we're both really excited about this. Uh, Dave is new to podcasting, um, but he is not new. new. Yeah, but he is not new. Uh, to wrestling, you know, and then the interesting thing about Dave and I is that we basically became wrestling fans at the same time. We're basically the same age. Same we basically age. found wrestling at like the same time, right around this year of '86. I think I was a couple months before. A couple. Of, I'm August. I'm the Orndorff feud. Yep. And I and and started. this is basically where I started. The first thing you I remember seeing on too. TV <clears throat> was Mean Gene showing a highlight of the. Attack in Phoenix on Saturday Night's well, Main Event. I'm, I'm the Orndorff feud, but I really, really, something captured me about when they switched the shows over from Championship Wrestling to Superstars and All-Star to Challenge, and they lit up those arenas, and they were really lit every every week on TV. Something there made me like a maniac with it. And, uh, there was no looking back. Well, I will say this. I cannot wait to do the Orndorff feud. That Oh, it's the best. That match, that cage match on Saturday Night's Main Event is one of my favorite things ever. The best. And even the one before that with Adonis jumping out of the crowd and Piper getting involved. You know uh, you know Rich Bokini, Dave? Uh, doesn't ring a bell, brother. He's like, uh, he worked for WWF as a ring announcer for a little bit. Okay. And I don't know, he's bounced around. He did the podcast with... Um, uh, who's the guy that was uh, talent relations? I can't even think of his name. WWF talent relations, right around. Not the one that the one that Coco got in a fight with. No, not Jr. But right around that time. Oh, you mean, oh, right. Okay. You're Why can't I think of his Lee name? Rock. The the Four Horsemen guy. Help me out. JJ Dillon. JJ Dillon. He did the podcast okay. with JJ Dillon. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I, I don't know him as a ring announcer, but I, I've heard that podcast. Or maybe it's what, what? maybe it's play by play. Not was he play by play on NXT for a little while? I wouldn't know a damn, the damnedest thing about okay, that. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Point yeah. being, he was on the Sportscasters once and okay. told me that he was at the Orndorf cage match. Oh, wow, well, I was in Hartford. Yeah, he was there. That's where he grew up. 
they filmed that um god i think it was december 13th like about three or four weeks before that was one of them sometimes they did it like two or three days before sometimes three or four weeks before this was that one was in a can for quite a while yeah so uh, what a show yeah but so i'm excited to do that one but we're gonna start here so to recap New podcast, myself, Hollywood Dave, uh, in New Jersey. We're going to do a podcast. We're going to start it. The pilot will be released right here where you listen to the sportscasters. You'll be able to find it here. It will be released the first week of December. Uh, I'm ready. And it's a two-parter. It's about Hogan versus King Kong Bundy. The podcast, we're thinking 24-inch podcast, maybe... When it comes crashing down, the Hulk Hogan podcast, you can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. If you like something, if you got a different name, uh, we'll once we decide on a name, we'll get a Twitter, we'll get an email so you guys can reach out. We'll get a presence on social. Uh, we'll do all that once we decide on a name. We'll have a great logo. If you like the Sportscasters logo or the Adams Division logo, uh, my friend Chris Smith from high school, he makes those. He'll make a nice one for us. And look at this is going to be the real deal. We're going to research these feuds. Uh, we're going to refresh our memories watching old TVs. We already subscribed to uh, kayfabe commentaries in case there's an interview we might want to watch. Uh, the reason- I have an old subscription there, but I have a password uh, probably. Yeah, so we. <laughs> it would we, probably take a really long time to retrieve. We updated that so that we can jump yeah. into that. Uh, so we're, we know we're both really excited. I'm really excited to work with Dave. I know he's really excited to finally Absolutely. get into the podcast game. Uh, and it's been a long time. It's yeah, probably just haven't listened to all this shit. God, maybe better, almost better part of ten years. I'd say now. Thanks again. Long- Thanks again to Kenny Albert and Glenn Kenny for being on the Sportscasters. Uh, look for Dave and I after Thanksgiving, first week of December, right around there. It'll be right here where you listen to podcasts. Dave, anything else you want to say before we bounce out of here? Uh, just, you know, if anybody wants to send you an email to Sportscasters, if they, they haven't had any ideas of topics or want to add to maybe a name that they think of. Yeah, any feedback. Cool. Yeah, yeah, give us some feedback. That's uh, that's about it, man. Just getting excited, pumped up, ready, ready to go. Chase Mesprin